Hey guys, what's up? This is Kyle. I'm here with the Orthodox Squad for Season 3. We are joined again by our friend Trey from Telusbound. Trey, how are you going? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for the uh, invitation. I, was, I wasn't I was on uh, that long ago, but it was uh, it was really fun the first time. Absolute pleasure. Um, so basically, kind of finished the old season, starting a new one, trying to get some more episodes in. Uh, today, again, we got a bit less than usual because some of us are on holiday, uh, road trips. Mary's with me today, so that's great. And we're going to deal with the topic of time and eternity, uh, how it intersects with philosophy, orthodoxy, all these kinds of things. Fun mm -hmm. content. So first question that I think we're just going to dive right into is, in our paradigm, what's our understanding of time and eternity and how are they related to each other? Right. Um, yeah, this is a really important question. Um, Dr. David Bradshaw told me it's like a really uh, underrated question, I, I guess, in um, contemporary theology. But um, orthodoxy actually has a lot to say about it because uh, for us, we don't understand eternity as just infinite duration. This seems to be sort of a naive understanding of eternity that you get in the West, which is why you have people like uh, Christopher Hitchens saying that he would hate to go to heaven because it's just so long he would inevitably get bored because you'd run out of things to experience or some, uh, something like that. Um, so this is just based on a misunderstanding of how we understand time and eternity because... Um, well, I guess we can go a little further back to um, actually the uh, Latin theology in general, and not just Latin theology, because I don't want to be unfair to sort of uh, Latin Christendom, but um, the philosophers, the Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophers tended to separate eternity from time. And this uh, separation was sort of adopted by people like uh, St. Augustine, amongst others. And that may have led to certain uh, misunderstandings, especially later on when they, uh, when philosophers in the modern period or in um, the late medieval period started um, taking it in a different direction than we as Orthodox would want to go. So for us, I think we need to understand that eternity is fundamentally personal. And this is something that Father Dimitri Staniloy talks about in his essay, Time and Eternity, and also in the volume one of The Experience of God. He talks about how eternity and time aren't separated. Rather, eternity is the perfection of time because fundamentally what eternity is, is the fullness of personal communion. So God is eternal because in God, there is no distance or interval separating the communion of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So what time is on a cosmic scale, we could say, is time is the interval between the creation of the world and our union with God, because that is that distance, time is almost like the form measuring the distance uh, that we see in actual history with um, man being created and then the fall, obviously. But now, uh, especially since the uh, incarnation of Christ, we are moving more and more towards God and uh, eternity and time are literally becoming united. And what that means is simply that the created world, the world created in, in time is being deified, is being brought into God. So that's what time is on, is on a cosmic scale. And then in terms of individual persons, time is basically the same. It follows the same universal pattern, just in a personal form. It's still defined by communion. So, um, and, and I think honestly, this makes sense of a lot of our experience of time, even when we don't um, have uh, any explicit spiritualist connotations to it. Like 
for example, what I mean is like in school, if you are learning about something you really don't like, you're not invested into it. It's going to be very boring. It's going to seem to last a very long time because every moment isn't um, filled with something you're interested in. You're not communing with the things that you're interacting with in the world. There's like a distance between it. You're not, um, and you're like isolated in yourself. So the experience of boredom is an experience of a lack of communion. So I think the experience of time for us, and this is what the saints sort of mean when they, um, when they experience God and like St. Sophroni, for example, talks about how he experienced God and literally felt himself outside of time. It's because time always is measuring a distance between something, ultimately yourself and God, when it comes to your own personal experience. So to reach eternity, to literally be in, in eternity is to enter into the eternal communion of God, where there is no distance or interval separating people. So what time is for us is the interval of waiting within acts of communion. Eternity is the perfection of time that transcends time because there is no interval or distance in eternity. So I think that's a very good point to start off with because the distinction you're making is between Kronos and Kairos, the two different concepts that the Greek philosophers would use. Mm -hmm. Kronos is kind of the, the time that we, for our viewers, it's the time that we ex experience in the earthly that just goes chronologically in our day-to-day. -day. It's the clock mm -hmm. kind of. Mm -hmm. And Kairos is this transcendental time that where it's one's kind of outside of themselves and they're experiencing time that way. It doesn't... Um, work in the same way so you're not going to spend eternity um running out of things to do because you're going to transcend that ultimately and like uh, trace said time and eternity are becoming one and the same and that's why we say today christ is risen today christ is is uh born today christ is baptized because time doesn't work in a chronological way when you're talking in a transcendental realm um that's a great way to to kind of segue into what my second question was going to be and I was going to ask essentially um does God experience chronological time does he experience time as we experience it or is there a second kind of time I think you've established there is a, a time he's he's experiencing but does he also experience time as we see it that's a good question I think um yeah I would have to uh cite Father Dimitri uh, Steneloy because uh he frames this within the essence energy distinction um and this is why it's like an example of like really creative thinking but not deviating from sort of the tradition handed down uh because I think that a lot of philosophers who are serious about philosophy and, and call themselves Christian, they're not working within sort of the orthodox paradigm the way Father uh, Dimitri was. So in any case, what he says is that Christ did um, truly condescend to us. He did self-limit because part, um, I think he talks about this elsewhere, maybe not in this specific essay, but he'll talk about how, um, how the infinity, the divine person has the power as infinite person to self-limit, to condescend to us, to choose freely not to be fully expressed for a temporary period of time. And that's what Christ did when he um, self-emptied, he um, descended down to us and truly became a man. Um, so th that's what Father uh, Demetrius says. Uh, basically, yes, 
God does experience time because it's through God experiencing time in his uh, condescension in, through his energies um, and in the person of Christ, he is able to deify time. He's able to take the time that he has entered into, unite it to him, and then ascend to the Father. And this essentially this imagery that we see, especially in the book of Revelation, is about created nature in the person of Christ being brought up into eternity. So um, God did truly enter into time. He walked in time as the person of Christ, and he's, uh, and then Christ send the sends the spirit to be present um, in the church. All of this is true, but at the same time, uh, despite this condescension, this was something Christ freely did. Um, it had no effect on the divine nature in itself. Rather, uh, human nature was united with divine nature in a perfect uh, synergy. Um, neither of the two being uh, diminished uh, in being what they probably are. So in any case, yeah, so God did enter into time, but the whole task of what Jesus is meant to do is to bring time into eternity. So it's not that forever Christ is good is going to be self-limiting in that sense forever. There is a sense in which Christ is always self-limiting, but it's different than in the sense that he um, stops himself from being fully present in creation because Christ's full presence in creation is eternity. That is the eschaton. So that will happen. That objectively will. It already has happened in a sense. Um, and this is just, we're living in time where we're, it's basically like the theater where the divine, the divine human communion is really taking place objectively and really in history. Um, so yeah, yeah. The answer is yes, but in a qualified way where it doesn't negate God's eternality and um, omnipotence and all his uh, qualities. Related to that so, uh, um, question, I had I had one. Um, I've seen thrown around um, occasionally that uh, people saying that since God knows all of time and knows what's in the future and all these things, right? Uh, that means that everything is predestined, you know, a Calvinistic kind of view. How would you um, refute that? Um, well, I'm not really an expert on these questions when it comes to like, uh, sort of apologetics for orthodoxy mm -hmm. against Protestantism. But mm -hmm. um, I would say that I and C.S. Lewis even makes this point. He's not a Calvinist. He's a Angli he was Anglican. But he said that God created a world of free persons with the true freedom to affect history in a real way. Like there is a sense in which um, like the, the, the world isn't predetermined in the sense that um, our actions don't have really an impact on it. Rather, I think it's because God transcends our history so much that the fact that God is Trinity, so he's perfectly complete in himself, means that what happens in creation ultimately will never impact him. So because of his perfect transcendence and because of his eternal completeness in the Trinity, he's able to really create the world out of nothing, give it freedom, and give it the freedom to make their own like we can as uh, image of god we can truly make our own, our own decisions to follow him or not to follow him and we have that true freedom to actualize our potentials in whatever way we will towards um so god does self-limit and give us that that freedom so yeah this is the point c.s lewis makes this is why i don't think any sort of confident universalism as it's called by people like david bentley hart um, and others really holds up because it's not that God has has predestined us either, either to hell or or heaven in the sense of just um, like mono synergy, no, mono and energetically um, 
choosing which future based solely on his will, but he takes into account our, our, our own will and our own actions. And he, and there's that synergy there. So, so I think that's the uh, orthodox understanding. Yeah, I, I've seen quite a few yeah, like so... instances where like people have like some prophecy, right? Uh, said about them by like a saint, right? Mm. But they can still affect whether or not that prophecy can come true. Like, for example, if you do this, if you decide to do this specific thing that's sinful, you will, you are bound for hell. That something like that, for example, mm -hmm. right? But that, but they will ultimately like, like reflect on that and choose to turn to God and like make that prophecy void. Mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that, you know, changing history. I I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, because that that prophecy uh, was provided so... by God to those saints, but you know, with like as you said, this the self um uh what was self um limitation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, that really shows how you know we are able to like really fully use our free will. Mm -hmm. So Mary, on that topic with uh, dealing with like uh, um, Calvinists in particular, you have to make the distinction between omniscience and all controlling. So whilst God is omniscient, so he knows everything, it doesn't mean he actually makes you do all those things. Exactly. It's kind yeah. of like uh, an analogy I heard is like in a movie and you go to the scene selector, you can see everything that's happening. Of course, it's nuanced because God can actually um, mm -hmm. affect those scenes in some ways. But if you are, in a simple analogy, outside of the movie, watching the movie, you're not in the, the chronological sequence of the events, but you can see all the scenes as they play out in like three seconds because it's all the scenes that are in front of you, right? It doesn't, that doesn't mean I'm controlling what the actors are doing. I can, as God, he can influence what they do, but he doesn't actually uh, ultimately make them do all of those things. They have to mm -hmm. actively choose to do them. So I find that um, Calvinists often completely overlook that, and they often cite like Romans, Romans, and heavily in their uh, argumentation. It's uh, just a classic instance of taking things out of out of context. Context. Yep. Um, so that's that. And another thing I wanted to bring up is uh, with what Trey was saying: Christ is not here to redeem our to 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 immortalize our fallen natures. Christ came to redeem our fallen nature. So when we talk about Christ incarnating uh, and being in our time, he's not here to make immortal our sin, make immortal the parts of us that are fallen. Because by appearing in our form, that's not what he's here to do. He's trying to bring our form back to what it was originally intended for. Uh, so uh, I think with all of this, that my point here is that human being not okay this is gnosticism when you say that someone as a human is dirty or bad or that the matter is bad that's gnosticism so you don't want, you want to avoid this but at the same time you want to remember that some elements of our human existence are negatively affected by the fall the entire cosmos was affected by the fall and christ didn't appear in our form to immortalize those things but rather to redeem them i hope that made sense toward the end at least mm -hmm. um, yeah the, the next thing I was going to ask is uh, how do we 
Can you elaborate on the significance of liturgical practices in the Orthodox world and how it prescribes or relates to the um, eternal worship? How does it relate to the divine? Right. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm also not really that well read on this. Um, I want to be. I, I want to read Maximus's book on uh, uh, the mystagogy. But um, I think uh, based on what David Bradshaw actually told me about this, because I asked him the same question. Um, I think this relates to sort of our understanding of liturgy and, and the Lord's Day uh, Sunday being symbolically the eighth day. So it's the, the day even beyond uh, the seven days of Genesis. It's a step into the divine itself. It's creation entering into the eighth eternal day. Um, and that's that's what the liturgy is. And the center of the liturgy is the Eucharist, where we truly commune with uh, God truly does uh, enter us. We enter into God. And there's this uh, real communion here. Uh, that is what fundamentally eternity is. That is um, and, and that's the life of a Christian uh, or that's the center of the life of the Christian. So we go out into the world and we do participate in time. We sort of do. Um, we sort of do everything described in the book of Ecclesiastes, but now we're not trapped in this sort of circular repetition, but we've reached the eighth day and we get to go out of ourselves, go out of time into eternity. And this, the eternity itself has to become the foundation of our being. And we need to sort of, there's all these analogies throughout scripture that Christ uses, especially whether it be, um, monetary analogies or analogies about building and all this stuff. Um, you need to have an eternal foundation, which is Christ. Fundamentally, it's a life in Christ. That is what um, that is what will last into eternity. And you need to build that up through your time on earth. And um, that is that makes time not just a self-negating process where you have a moment, that moment's done, and nothing from that lasts anymore into the future. But you can have eternity at one point, and that can be consummated. So into the future can be brought and grown into what it already was to an even fuller extent. So like this, the mustard seed grows into um, the tree of faith. Um, that's like a really good metaphor for what it's like to actually experience deification. Um, now, this is sort of talking purely uh, theologically. It's not like I've experienced this or anything. But um, I think at the same time, though, in a lesser sense, not like that sort of a lofty sense that, oh, we're experiencing God, uh, deification, um, which makes you think that it's like <laughs> any of us have like seen the uncreated light with our eyes. That's not what you really have to say. You just need to recognize that even in the life of a Christian yourself, experiencing temptation and experiencing the liturgy, experiencing two uh, true states of grace, if you're comfortable with that language, um, and then states of mortal sin, like I, I interpret that as a state truly um, divided or alienated from God. These sort of do fit fundamental patterns that you can link to the Bible and and in fundamentally to the life of Christ. Um, um, the life of Christ and the apostles and what we find in scripture. So um, that's sort of a roundabout way to say that the liturgy shows us a particular pattern of life. It shows us how our life in time is meant to be. We're supposed to commune with God and then sort of enter back into the world with this knowledge that we have. And that is how the gospel is spread. That is how uh, Christ conquers the nation uh, conquers the nations. And, um, so that's the task of, of the church. It's basically bringing eternity into time or, 
us who were in time enter into eternity um and yet we remain in time in a, in a certain sense so um yeah that's that's what i understand from uh what i heard from david bradshaw and sort of my own personal reflections so it's a large part of what the uh, uh what's it called the new testament does is it brings the old testament kind of mundane into the divine uh, you see that with the heavenly kingdom of Jerusalem and the tabernacle of Moses, they're kind of explicitly described as a heavenly prototype of the kingdom to come, if that makes sense. And the heavenly mm -hmm. Jerusalem will never fade, um, which is not the same for the earthly Jerusalem, which was established in the um, Old Testament. Mm -hmm. That new Jerusalem that is to come is eternal and that's what the New Testament does pretty much. It's bridging that gap between the us as, as we are now, uh, the mundane beings we are, and allowing us to attain theosis by entering into that eternity with God. Something else that I think is, uh, I think, very important to bring up is that uh, I completely forgot my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry. I was going to say something on the heavenly kingdom, the icons, icons, icons are like a, a portal into the, they bring the, the eternal into the temporal. So you want to remember this when, when you're praying, you don't pray, you know, okay. With icons, we're not praying to the wood of the icon. They're a window into the divine realm. And you don't, you don't pray to a saint in the sense that you, you think the saint in and of themselves is, is a God. You're asking for the intercession of saints, a quick bit of Protestant polemics. You're asking for the intercession of the saint so that they can they can intercede on your behalf, just like you'd ask, for example, someone that is your friend at church to pray for you. If you believe that the saints are truly alive in Christ and that they are the, the kind of epitome of what you're trying to attain as an Orthodox Christian, why is it better to ask your friend at church than to someone that you believe is already immortalized and is in direct communion with God? So what they do, icons, is they bring that eternal element of uh, divine kingdom, which they've already entered, uh, and they bring it down so that we can ask for their intercessions. And also um, just like events and moments in the Bible, like the nativity, right? Kind of shows its eternal nature as well. Timeless event, yeah. That's yeah, why we say, like event. I said this book. I said this before, I think today Christ is baptized, today Christ is born is something that's actually said in the liturgy. It's not just meaningless words that we put together because they sound cool. There's mm -hmm. actual theological implications of the words themselves. Mm. Um, what With regards to time and the uh, creation and eternity, how does what we did, did, okay, did what we do affect Adam and Eve's um, perception of time in a way? That's, I think, an important question because uh, I there was no death before the fall. We know this. So then is this chronological time we're experiencing also a result of the fall? I mm -hmm. genuinely don't know the answer. And if you've got insight, that would be great. Um, yeah, that's a really crucial question. Um, I, I think when we're approaching it uh, from an orthodox perspective, we need to understand that time is not in itself bad. Um, there are aspects of your experience of time that can be bad. Um, like you can you can experience time in like a bad way, not in like a moralist sense, but like teleologically. There's a way, like there's 
meaning to like popular phrases like that's a waste of time um there is time that can be a genuine waste of time and i keep referring to father uh dimitri but he says that um time that is used in a sinful which is in its essence really a selfish way in a, a, an assertion of the will that isn't entering into a communion with anyone but just isolating yourself um this is like a true waste of time and um, this is like going into um, the death of the desert of yourself, to quote sort of a, a paraphrase of, of Father Dimitri. Um, but uh, sorry, can you remind me of the question? I got I got off track. I think <laughs> I was asking: Was time impacted by what Adam and Eve did? Because death, right, we right, know, was yeah. introduced okay. by their actions. Yeah, I, I just want to say that whatever I say is probably just speculation, but I think uh, that, yeah, yeah, I, I think that on this question, there probably was an effect in their experience of time, but they did experience time before because time, again, is an interval, a distance between God and man, but that distance doesn't need to be experienced as something bad, like something that needs, like stuff that are that is bad that just has no place in the world is stuff you need to repent of it's sin and that's breaking yourself from it but when you're sort of in a state where you are not in full communion with god and yet you're not committing sin you're just sort of you're you're on the on the ascent up the ladder of of divine ascent to to um reference that famous uh icon um there there isn't anything bad with that so i don't think it's necessary or even really consistent with what scripture and the fathers say to say that Adam and Eve didn't experience time or they were in eternity or that, yeah, they weren't created into time and that time was in itself bad because time isn't bad, it's meant to be fulfilled because what it fundamentally is, is the space of communion that isn't, that exists on account of the fact that it's not brought to its full, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's anything bad there. So I think when it becomes bad is when you, have time that is no longer directed towards communion with God, but it's instead like we have the whole story of, of the world until the flood of Noah, we have this fall into um, greater depths of sin. Um, my cousin Nate actually, uh, he, he noticed uh, a, a sort of weird uh, pattern in the early chapters of Genesis where Adam commits sin and then he uh, he accepts the protection of God, but he's still exiled. Cain commits sin, he murders his brother, and God gives him protection, but Cain doesn't really trust the protection of God and builds his own sort of city based on force. And then Lamech, who is a descendant of Cain, if I'm not mistaken, he says that he's killed a bunch of people and doesn't even look at all for the protection of God, but just says that he will be his own avenger. So what you're having is a fall into more and more of a stubborn assertion of your will without any care for God. And that really is the essence of sin. And what that ends in at the level of time is hell, ultimately, because hell is a, an eternity of no communion at all, communion at all, because if time is an interval of waiting between acts of communion, ultimately are entering into God. And when we fully enter into God, that's the fullness of eternity because there's no longer any distance. In hell, where there is no movement towards God at all, it's just isolation in yourself, then you have a sort of reversal into a paradoxical form of eternity 
that has no time because there is no love. So time only exists where there is some link between God and man, a bond of of love in essence, and hell is a complete break of that. Um, so I think a closer form, like the the spiral down to complete self-isolation, com complete um, disunion between God and man, that was introduced into the world through the fall, and the possibility of hell was introduced into the world through the fall. But Adam and Eve didn't go to hell, um, so I don't think they ever experienced this full abyss of complete and utter isolation from God. Um, at least not, um, like perhaps they did in the original Genesis story, but I mean, they're not in hell, right? So um, there was always redemption from that. But there is a point, this this is a crucial point, there always is a point where there is no escaping from it because there is no communion left because of your own choice. So that's the orthodox view on um, sort of soteriology and the possibility of eternal, eternal damnation. Um, it's a very specific kind of eternity. It's an eternity of, of self-isolation. Yeah, so uh, there's that reminds me of this story my dad told me a uh, long time ago where this there was this man who um, uh, spoke to his guardian angel or something and agreed to go to hell for three seconds to see what what it was like or something like that. I don't quite mm -hmm. remember the details. And so he goes there and it feels like eternity. He's he's like tortured in darkness, despair, just complete isolation. And he cries for his guardian angel finally to take him out. And the angel comes and, is, and feels sorry, but it's like it hasn't even been a second. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it felt like eternity in there. Yeah. Yeah. Something I want to uh, just interject on that topic is... First of all, with those stories that Mary is saying, a lot of the time, um, I, they're not always, um, we don't know their source, but what I think they're trying to do is to introduce a concept like we're just talking about and um, mm. kind of make it understandable to the masses. I really, I like that story. It's, it's I think, making it clear that there is disconnect or, or uh distinction between chronological time and kairos time so if one second there felt like an eternity he asked for three <laughs> they're, they're like parables they're great they're great something i want to say about lamech though was another interjection he's actually the first guy that that was polygamous in the old testament if you actually read into it he's the first guy that took more than one wife so it's very interesting that the guy that's literally the son of the first murderer who murdered more people himself goes and does something like polygamy. Why? I think it's because it's outside of God's plan and that it was never God's intended, something God intended. So people are like, oh yeah, in the Old Testament, God permitted polygamy. There's a big difference between endorsing something and 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 permitting something. I, I can say, for example, like that, that, that that's what... That's what I wanted to say. Lamech is the first guy that in the Bible, Old Testament, that is polygamous. On uh, you were saying time and space. What I wanted to bring up is you said time, and then you said there's a space in hell. Usually, time and space are connected. So, what I wanted to ask was, how does space come into this paradigm of time? And in orthodoxy, are they connected in some way? That was the question. Right. Yeah, that's uh, an important question. Um, 
I need to point people again to uh, Father Dimitrius Staniloy's, uh Experience of God, Volume 1, because he actually like addresses this uh, specifically. And I don't know of any other Orthodox source that addresses it that clearly. Um, but basically, space and time both are uh, forms of a distance between things. And at the same time, they themselves are not... Um, they're not bad. So they're not like, um, they're not like they're necessarily apart from God's creation. And because of that, there is something about them that will be preserved. Um, so space will not be like, people think of heaven as like completely, because there's no space, it's almost like it's, um, or it's above space and time. It's like ethereal, but like God is described as a rock in the Bible. There is something very weighty about God. Like he, he's, he's strong. He crushes his enemies. He, um, um, like all of this imagery that we shouldn't ignore about like the, the, the hardness of God and like how God, there is a sense in which God relates, is connected with space. And there is something about space that at least symbolizes a higher reality that exists eternally in God, because space and time are created a uh, pattern upon, upon God. Um, but ultimately they are transcended in the sense that th whatever they were missing before becomes fully actualized so because what they always were was communion uh because space is where objects in interact but at the same time when we talk about the space between things we're talking about um a lack of perfect communion um and that's in the same way time is a similar lack of perfect communion um and that's that's really what they um they are and how they're connected um but yeah, I, I don't uh, I don't think I can give the most uh, detailed answer because I'm really just going off of what Father Demetrius said, and I haven't read it in a little while, so I'd have to sort of uh, brush up on it. Um, but yeah, uh, what's just important to note is they're not bad, and there's something about them both that are um, that symbolize God and will be preserved into eternity. Uh, are you familiar with Zeno's paradoxes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so basically, there are a set of famous, for those watching, a set of famous paradoxes set by Zeno that kind of attack this notion of a continuous space-time. Uh, I'm going to just read one out. For example, the Achilles and the Tortoise par paradox goes that if uh, a very fast Achilles is unable to catch a prodding tortoise, which has been given a head start, since during the time it takes Achilles to catch up to the given position, the tortoise has moved forward the same distance. That's the paradox. That that um, do you know it better than me? I don't know if I said that correctly. Um, it's basically that Achilles. If you look at the paradox, that every single time Achilles gets because okay, the tortoise has a head start. The tortoise keeps <laughs> moving incrementally. Every time Achilles gets closer, the tortoise keeps moving incrementally. And if you actually look at the paradox, Achilles never actually catches the tortoise. Mm -hmm. That's the paradox. That's the most famous one. Um, right. Those of you that are bothered to look into it, go for it. But I think it's fallacious because in reality, Achilles will clearly pass the tortoise. We know that. But if you read the paradox as he puts it forward, he won't. And that's basically the paradox. That's the whole um, Zenos. That's the most famous Zenos paradox. You've got also the arrow paradox, the state paradox, the dichotomy paradox, and 
what these things are trying to do is they're trying to question our notions of space and time and make us ask like maybe we have it wrong maybe maybe chronologically time doesn't work in the way it does what are your thoughts on these kinds of paradox other than just interesting mind games because i i also find with that whole if a rock falls in a forest and no one hears it did the rock actually fall i don't know if i'd quite put xeno's paradoxes with those kind of things because they're not xeno's paradoxes are actually paradoxical this rock one for example is like oh yeah but did it happen you didn't see it mm-hmm. i can't believe in what i can't see which obviously there's a million things you can't see do you find that these for very common paradoxes relating to space and time are um edifying in any way or good to think about yeah but i think you should be interpreting it from the proper context and specifically you just need to understand that reality is fundamentally communal so this is something i talk about on my channel a lot we tend when we think about stuff to unknowingly or unwillingly abstract things into divided entities um, and isolated things as if they're all not fundamentally related to each other. So I think the great example of that is actually the paradox you didn't talk about explicitly. You mentioned it, but uh, that wasn't the example you used, uh, the arrow paradox. Because what Zeno essentially says is, if I'm remembering correctly, you shoot an arrow, um, you can... um, you can divide it into smaller and smaller points along the trage- trajectory, essentially for infinity. Um, you can do it, uh, uh, yeah, an infinite amount of times, keep dividing into smaller and smaller points. But I think this is ultimately just um, like a, a misunderstanding of what time fundamentally is, because he's operating on the presupposition that you can find something just through division, through abstraction, breaking things apart. You can find... Um, um, that that this is fu- like this is even a legitimate move to make. Like uh, I don't want. I wanted to say like find like a core self-referential datum or atom, uh, but I don't think Zeno says that. But someone like Leibniz, for example, with like the monads, uh, where everything is like fundamentally this absolutely simple tiny monad. Um, I'm pretty sure Leibniz talks about that. That is this sort of fragmenting logic at work where you think of things in space and with Zeno more so things in time, um, you think of uh, things as self-isolated, as not being essentially or necessarily connected. So I think you just sort of avoid Zeno's paradox in uh, completely when you no longer think of time as composed of discrete atomize isolated points of time or moments but see how every moment is flowing into the other one and how the moments in the past aren't what they are except for in in relation to the future like the future determines what the past is going to it is sort of retroactively um the best example in literature to my knowledge of this sort of logic is in c.s lewis's the great divorce where i believe he has george mcdonald talk about how those in hell retroactively experience the whole of their life as uh, a descent to hell, as essentially already being hell. And then those in heaven experience all of their life, like reflecting back, all of their life has been consummated, brought together, redeemed in a true way, preserving what was good in the past and, um, and bringing it into eternity. Like that's what true redemption is. 
um, it's not just leaving every everything behind, um, but it's bringing it into eternity. It's consummating it and bring into it, bringing uh, fully manifesting what it always already was. Um, so that's that's how C.S. Lewis explains uh, sort of the way um, the way time works in general. Um, it can either be a time of of hell, which is the fracturing of time into these self-isolated, self-referential moments, or it can be a time of communion where everything is brought together. Every moment is uh, not destroyed, but redeemed and brought into eternity in a true way. It's kind of hard to talk about and and, no, and think about I that. I think you made some yeah. valid points. Uh, I, I would read C.S. Lewis. At the start. On, on the, any particular book you'd recommend? Any Any book? Yeah, on that topic. Yeah, okay. Uh yes. C.S. Lewis. Lewis is the great divorce. And um maybe uh I would recommend Pavel Florensky's The Pillar and Ground of the Truth, but it's a bit more difficult um and not at, not as obvious what he's trying to trying to say. So if you're more philosophically minded, maybe uh Florensky's Pillar and Ground of the Truth as well. All right, so Florensky's Ground of the Truth and C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, something I was going to go back to that you actually brought up at the very start, which I think is in interesting. Uh, Augustine and Matthias actually said that time and eternity are two distinct things, which is a, a, kind, of, it's a kind of segue away from the Greek fathers. They actually just um, say that, I think Augustine remarks just blatantly that eternity is god that's the, mm -hmm. the full um statement that he makes um whereas i find with the greek fathers or you know more so the what those that came before augustine i guess even aristotle they do not make this they do not say that they do not say that that um that time is a human construct and that eternity is is god mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it, i can kind of see where he'd go to that when you have the distinction between Kronos and Kairos but to go to the point where you say that um I don't know God is eternity to me does seem like a bit of a stretch and I do think it affected a lot of later thoughts like what happened with with Matthias and the rest and eventually Aquinas uh, it's not to attack or discredit Latin theology at all it's just something interesting that I've noticed that Augustine has said yeah like topic, for you... just to clarify sorry um like what bradshaw says is that the problem is um it, it's not the phrase uh god is god is eternity i know what you mean by that like the, you can find stuff like that in the eastern fathers though but specifically the claim that bradshaw makes is that for augustine he tends to lean in the direction where eternity is god in the sense as it is the divine essence. So everything about God substance. could be collapsed into an identity identity with eternity. While for us, eternity is is I think we could call it a divine energy, um, or or sorry, time and eternity could be divine energies. Um, but like more like they're divine names. They're um they're part of the eternal life of God. Like obviously eternity is part of the eternal life of God. So um um yeah, that's uh that's the problem Bradshaw has. It's sort of an absolute divine simplicity that you really see with uh, with Aquinas. Uh, but sorry, sorry to cut you off. I think it's interesting also to note that that 
being the beginning and the end. So we know Christ is in all the parts of God are co-equal and co-eternal. Christ exists outside time and he was there before time started and he will be there after time ends for us, chronologically at least. Mm -hmm. um, but it's specifically the person of Christ that he has a beginning and the end. He is mm -hmm. the beginning and the end. It's the word mm -hmm. of God that has the beginning and the end. Why is that, I think, theologically important? Just me speculating, putting out my own thoughts here. I think it's because he has actually incarnated into the material world. And that is why to his existence, time has a beginning and an end. Not for his existence, mind you, but he, he is in that sense, therefore, the beginning and the end. That's just me throwing that out there. Could be wrong. Um, something I was going to actually segue into is, do you think time and ethics are related in any way? Does time and ethics, um, does time affect ethics? And if it does, how so? Um, yeah, I think there's a connection there. Um specifically in terms of teleology because teleology has to do with the purposes of things and the purpose of ourselves um and when it comes like ethics at least traditionally was about what is the, the purpose of mankind um and some people would claim that this is reducing our our um our morality to sort of a natural um uh, a natural like ontological for lack of a more clear term like an ontological state of 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 ourselves um but in the greek fathers especially or in the in the early christians east and west ontology was not a divided aspect of reality but the whole human being participated in um in salvation and um so so what i'm trying to say is that time and eternity were connected in uh sorry time and ethics were connected because it was all related to teleology and the ultimate purpose of humanity so we exist in time and our purpose like our ethical purpose we could say is to what christ says to uh, love our neighbor as ourselves and to love god above all um and while that is an ethical thing um or an ethical demand upon upon us by God at the same time 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 itself is meant to be used in the, this ethical way but this has a real impact upon time itself so like I was talking about how like eternity is brought into time in Christ and this deifies time this transforms our life in time into an ascent towards eternity so there isn't a disconnection between ethics and um, time, but like the real character of time itself, like the structure of time is, it shares um, the same shape as the structure of our ethical perfection, our perfection in virtue, because it's through our perfection in virtue, which ultimately all true virtue is um, following God. It's following the commandments of God and being united to God. Um, um, this is related to time in a real way because it's through this true union with God that we enter into eternity and our life and time is transformed. Um, so yeah, there is like a real connection there because for us, we don't have a separation between the realm of ethics and then the realm of ontology or um, what the world really is in itself as opposed to just our subjective projects and ethical um, uh, ethical ideas. 
So with regards to time, as, as it's uh, brought into eternity, does the past cease to exist, essentially? Because um, obviously there were moments in time. Is the present just a fleeting moment? Uh, our thought is chronological. We think chronologically. I didn't think what I thought two seconds ago, as I will in two seconds. So how will my thought be affected by time coming into eternity if I can no longer think chronologically? Does the past then cease to exist? And is the present no longer a fleeting moment? How would you explain right. that in your own words? Um, yeah, so this is like one of the most... Not to sound like I'm interviewing you. I'm, I'm yeah. kind of putting you on the spot here. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's just a difficult question in general because uh, I think that there's a sense in which you don't truly know until you experience it. So like there i think there is like a limitation but but there are people who have experienced this like i mentioned saint Sophroni earlier um he talks about how like he's lifted into the presence of god where there's no thought upon himself it's just this pure experience of god that is a true bringing up of himself from out of time and into eternity um and it seems to me like from my reading um, although not really understanding what he's saying because you kind of need to experience it to understand it. But what I what I gather is that there wasn't a division between the past and the present that consisted of, oh, that was yesterday and I was like this yesterday. But it's just an immediate like um, experience of God that is itself everything. So it's... It, you can't go from a state of lesser to more to perfection in God in the sense that um, um, you were lacking something and now you have something more um, because you already have everything when you are in communion with God and in communion with his infinity. Um, so I think that the experience of time that we have, which is not what we'll experience when we're actually united to God in eternity is of, of a distinct sort because no present moment meets the criteria of eternity. No present moment gives us the fullness of what we want, um, which is ultimately communion with the infinite God. Um, so each present moment sort of is not being able to be fully present because uh, like God's eternity is an eternity of full presence, right? There is no past and future in God. It's just full presence, which contains everything insofar as our own present experience doesn't actually complete the criteria of true presence, which is the eternity of God, it falls apart into a new moment. Um, but you can take that falling apart and use it to cultivate what is eternal, which is your life in Christ. So that is sort of our call as Christians is to not let time just fracture into nothingness and then we die and then we have nothing to um we have nothing in us that is already eternal which we can take into eternity and um yeah yeah so uh that's that's the point of our uh of our life is to not allow time to fra fracture into these uh just fleeting experiences but to have a true connection with the divine and the eternal this okay playing a bit of the devil's advocate here how would you mm -hmm. explain then uh like why I don't look the same as I did when I was five years old. I won't look the same in 10 years either, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're going to become eternal, which version of me becomes eternal? See, is it right. the version that I, I was yesterday or tomorrow? It's very interesting to think about.
I know Platonist philosophers will argue that abstract entities like numbers and mathematical objects, they exist independently of the human thought and the physical world. Mm-hmm. So how do you ascribe, because, you know, they never change. One never changes in, in essence. It's like one is literally just one whole or two, three. But human beings, they actually are affected by time. They have a change through time. One will be the same in 100 years as it was today. How do mm-hmm. objects that are affected by time and change through time enter into this eternity and which version of them does so? What's your speculations on the topic? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that what is preserved is that which is consistent with the life of eternity. So I, I think we should just understand that, like, for example, example the the youth of a child, there's something about that that should be preserved into eternity. And Christ even talks about it. And I think it's like the innocence of a child, sort of like the child lives almost in a sort of eternity because there isn't this uh, division of the child, like the experience of the child as an I and the experience of the world. There's especially less of that, but especially like an infant, there is no I, like I am a baby, like I am a subject. There's just this immediate experience of reality. And that sort of immediacy is what is meant to last into eternity. But what isn't meant to last into eternity is the lack of freedom that an infant has, the lack of being a person who is able to know that it exists in communion and to truly love in a free, self-emptying way that we are meant to and that Christ demonstrates to us is the height of perfection for a human being. Um, So there's there's parts of the past because nothing is bad in itself, but some things are incomplete. So I think what is good will be preserved in our final eschatological state, but it will be preserved in a way that it has transformed it into the perfection that it already potentially had in potential. So it's like an actualization of potential, just use classic sort of Aristotelian language. Um, and and that's my speculation. It's not that we're going to go back to some arbitrary point in time and like, oh, now I'm I'm 30 years old. I'm not sure. I don't even know if it will make sense in the eschaton to speak of, oh, you're an old man and I'm a young man. I, I don't know. Um, I really don't. So I, I don't think it's as simple as like you go back to um, a sp- specific state spiritually any more than that would be the case bodily, if you know what I mean. Like you have a certain spiritual experience of yourself as an individual and that past self of yours, there's something truly about that that is connected to you. Like I am the same person and like there's something about that past self in me. So my past self lives on in me, but also there are parts of my old self that I don't want (laughs) into eternity that are just, you can recognize as bad. They're simple. And that's what it, that's fundamentally what, um, the purpose of like baptism and becoming a Christian is separating yourself from the old man and becoming reborn in Christ. So, um, um, yeah, that's, that's, I'm sort of rambling on here. Um, but I think that the crucial point is that there are certain parts of you that will be preserved into eternity. And it's, it's sort of easy to recognize what parts of those are. Christ gave us sort of an objective standard of what is suitable for eternity. And it's, um, basically a life of love, of love of God and love of your neighbor. And what won't be is the selfish parts of you, the sinful parts of you, those will be destroyed. Um, and, um, they'll be destroyed in Christ because Christ takes the, the, 
the consequences of our sin and he destroys it. All sin is destroyed in Christ. I think also we've all got this notion that that time is ticking because we all are well going to die. That's just the sad reality. Uh, that's part of the fall and our fallen natures. We have to experience death. And that's why I feel like it actually does affect when, when you become aware of this, because like you said, a child, they just exist in the moment. They, they don't think, oh, yeah, you know, I'm actually going to die in, in like this much time. Mm-hmm. When you begin to become aware of this, it really does drive your values, your goals and your actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, being aware that you're going to die might make someone really motivated to get good at this one thing or to experience something they would not have otherwise experienced. And I think how you play with that does affect your, does reflect on your inner state. Because if someone's like, oh yeah, we've all heard the, the phrase YOLO, like you only live once. What people mean by this sometimes literally just means I only live once, therefore I'm going to go out and do a bunch of bad things I would not have otherwise done. Mm-hmm. Whereas for someone else, that phrase means I only live once, therefore I'm going to experience something amazing that I would not have otherwise done. So. I think time really does bring out the character in people and their internal state. And I don't know if in the eternal kingdom, there will be any remnant of the chronos time. And that's something that I, I would appreciate your thought on. Do you think there's going to be any element of this chronos that remains, or is it going to be entirely Kairos time? Right. Um, I don't know, but, um, I, I think in the sense of insofar as this chronos time refers to separation between purpose, uh, persons and a sort of general um, lack of fulfillment, like the sense that I am not where I want to be. Like that's why there's no real rest in this life. Um, that is like a complete rest. Like you can have moments of rest. Um, and I think that there is a real sense of which you can have peace in God. But fundamentally, when it comes to the rest of your entire personhood, like I have what I want, I have attained it. Um, that language is even false because what we are trying to attain is a a, a person, is Christ. Um, um, that sort of time that expresses a distance in an unfulfilled desire, that won't exist. But at the same time, I don't really believe that like we won't be pursuing things in the eschaton even like we won't be pursuing projects i don't think there will be like we're made in god's image right right that that, that desire to create comes from being the image of god Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i think it would be quite arbitrary of god to just say okay i created you with this innate desire which is not inherently evil or wrong but i'm just going to force you not to use it in any way whatsoever so i'd agree with you there Uh, carry on yeah um, yeah, no, that's a great uh, summary of like sort of the the problem I see with that position, uh, because like we believe that God is infinite and he has infinite energies and infinite actualities to him. So there literally is infinite reality in God, the fullness of everything. So everything contains like literally everything. So you can uh, and that's like an inexhaustible fountain of possibility of I, I don't like using this sort of philosophically loaded language, but the main, like I was talking earlier about Hitchens and his idea that you'll be bored in heaven. Well, the reason you can't be is because there is always more to learn about God. There is an infinite wellspring in God. Uh, 
that we have access to and that we can eternally move deeper and deeper into. And this is sort of the paradox because at the same time, this movement isn't powered by a lacking that was existing before, because I think desire in sort of Kronos time, to use your language, is like, um, is desire fulfilled by a lack of something. And it's because of the lack of one present moment that you move to another one. So like, I had, I am, separated from God at this moment, but I can recognize maybe a year later, I have grown in my relationship with God. Because we already have found God in the eschaton, I think that the experience of this movement in this genuine, um, um, almost like ever deepening experience of the revelation of God, um, it needs to be understood carefully because it's not as if we lacked God at some point in the eschaton and God has fulfilled what was lacking. No, we had everything, but everything is an infinity that always gives more. And I think this is what um, St. Maximus, the confessor, meant by the phrase, um, uh, the ever-moving rest, to refer to the eternity of God. There's many ways to, I think I'm going to actually go into this just uh, from a different perspective. Why can't I just see time as motion? Because look, if I go back in time fast enough from a physics perspective, I can actually go back in time. Mm -hmm. So what's the fallacy there? Why am I committing? Like, what's wrong? Why can't I think like that? What would you say? Um, I'm not that sure. Wrong? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's wrong. I wouldn't reduce time to motion because motion is its sort of own energy um like like it's its own actuality its own reality that isn't just reducible to god in a sort of like almost like a sort of absolute divine simplicity way where it's like all of the properties are themselves identical to one thing um but they express the same reality like i would even say time is the form of motion because it's how you sort of measure motion like motion occurs within a temporal uh sequence um and god is beyond motion because he is perfect motion and this is sort of the paradox of the antinomy because motion in god is no longer a movement from one thing crossing an interval and reaching it but in god the father son and holy spirit have already reached each other they've already completed the communion so it yes it is a motion um but it's an ever moving motion. It's a paradox. Like you really cannot understand it in purely rationalistic language, um, or at least you need the the Christian dogmas that were revealed and showed this sort of paradoxical and yet not a nonsensical, not an illogical sort of um, way of looking at the world where it, where um, where you can have motion that is yet perfect rest, or you can have eternity that is the fullness of time. Um, and you can have uh, three persons who are perfectly united in one God. All of these antinomies point uh, to the higher divine source of of revelation um, uh, that I think it's the foundation of the Orthodox faith in particular. Does our perception of time differ then from the secular perspective or even from other denominations, like a different group of, of uh, Christians or... or uh different religions does our perspective of time have something that theirs might be lacking or that distinguishes us yeah i think especially with atheists it's like they don't believe that time is ultimately like they don't believe that the reality of the world right now is a reality where christ is working 
to deify the world, to unite himself with the world. So if you don't believe in this, all you can really see is time as basically an eternity where nothing happens because everything dies, everyone passes, everything passes away, um, nothing lasts. So there is either, there basically is just an infinity, an eternity rather of nothingness for an atheist. Um, and for other Christian denominations, I don't know, it really depends on, I, I wouldn't want to speak for anyone else, but uh, I would agree with David Bradshaw, at least to a certain extent, that aspects of the Western tradition veered off course, uh, at least in certain areas or in certain points of emphasis. But um, but yeah, we in the Orthodox tradition has, have a very specific way of articulating it, and it's fundamentally Trinitarian. And it's fundamentally related to our understanding of eternity as a personal reality. Um, and again, Father um, Dimitru uh, makes that really clear. So here's a, a last, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask like one or two more questions and I'm sure. going to give you some time to, to talk, just talk about whatever. I think the second to last question I'm going to ask is angels. Angels are not the same as beings. They're not made in the material world. They are spiritual beings. Do they um, experience time like so? Because I think St. Basil actually says that angels experience, like to them, it's all the same. They, they eternal, the nature of eternal is for angels as the eternal of time is to created or sens sensible objects, not created because they're created. But mm -hmm. for sensible objects, the nature of time is the sensible objects as the nature of eternality is for angels. Does, does that, what are your thoughts on that? And does that have any implications on uh, like demons? Because demons are in essence were angels, mm -hmm. which, what do you think? Um, yeah, yeah. I think there's, um, I, well, I think that the question of angels can be really illuminating because the best way to talk about eternity and time is sort of to talk about complete contrasts. So that's why I was talking about like hell as the eternity of self-isolation, heaven as the eternity of communion. So you can understand that, yes, they're both eternal, but in fundamentally different ways. And with the angels and the demons, um, the I would say the, the uh, a way you could articulate it that wouldn't be controversial in the church is that there was a heavenly host created um, in Genesis one, and they were created in perfect communion with God. So God was, or in, in the fullness of God's revelation. So this revelation includes knowledge of the truth. It includes basically everything. So God, uh, there was nothing within the angels that they didn't know, no ignorance. And, um, sort of to set this point that I want to make up, uh, th that I want to make, um, I would mention the biblical, um, doctrine, I would say, of the culpability for sin and what the criteria is, because basically the criteria for sin is your knowledge of whether it is sinful or not. So um, Paul says that he was uh, ignorant, but God, or he persecuted the church, but God forgave him because he showed ignorance. St. Peter, when he was preaching to the Jews, he said, yes, you killed the Messiah, but you did it. You didn't know what you were doing. You did it in ignorance. Um, so it seems like ignorance has a um, very important place when it comes to understanding culpability for um, for sin. So angels are basically created without any um, ignorance. They are 
they are in pr the presence of the full revelation of God. And this means that when they turn from God, they are rejecting him in fullness. Adam and Eve were not no rejecting repentance. God. Yes, no repentance and yes. no possibility for repentance because their will has become fully immersed in God. Um, and, and I think I've, I was thinking about this, this earlier. I think you need to have a point where the human being gets to make the fundamental choice of will I enter into communion or not, whether it be a human being or angel, rather. Um, I know people are always like, well, why can't, why can't they just go for a, a certain period of time and then make a new choice? Well, if they could do that, then there is an, it's ontologically possible for a being created by God to just sort of aimlessly roam forever. Because in theory, I could just never say yes or say no to God. And I could just live on into eternity in sort of a middle state. But this is not possible. This sort of neutrality is never possible. So I think, um, and, and apologize if that was a bit confusing because I was just thinking about it earlier. Um, th there has to be a point where you choose God or my own self, my own self-isolation. And the claim of the Christian tradition and the Bible, I would say, is just that the angels had that choice um, at that time. They experienced the full revelation of God. And it's not like, it's not in itself different, or we could say more less fair for the angels than us, because we're going to have to make a similar choice as well before the judgment seat of Christ. When we enter into the, like, like the toll house doctrine is basically talking about the ascent of the soul to the aerial realm, to the, the heavens. And that is, that is what the heavenly hosts are. They reside in the heavens. They reside before the face of Christ. Um, so the devil made a, a choice to sin, and that sin brought him fully out of communion with God. And the rest of history from the perspective of the devil is his attempt to retain his influence over creation. And God um, um, and Christ um, basically taking back creation away from the devil who had fallen from the heavens into earth. Uh, Christ is reclaiming the earth for himself. He's redeeming um, uh, the human race from the corruption of the devil. Um, and ultimately devil will be cast will be cast away into the lake of fire where he'll have no influence over creation whatsoever. He'll be utterly impotent and utter, utter, utterly pacified by, by Christ. Um, so, so yeah, so that's the eternity of, of the demons. It's a full rejection of God. And then for the angels, they fully made the choice to accept God. Um, last thing I'll say is that um, I think when we understand that people, uh, lots of people say that the sin of the devil was pride. And when you understand that the purpose of the angels, this is especially clear in Revelation, I think, uh, Seraphim Hamilton has argued this really well. The purpose of angels was to guide mankind into their proper glorification as the rulers of creation. This is why Christ became a man. He didn't become an angel. Uh, he didn't incarnate as an, as an angel. He incarnated as a man. And he also didn't become incarnate as um, a horse. Um, there's something about man himself. And angels, as possessing heavenly wisdom, was were meant to come down to creation, guide man. That is, C.S. Lewis sees the devil as, uh, in the space trilogy, he sees the devil as a guardian angel of the earth, who when he realized that man was going to have more authority than him was meant to not in a dominating way, but simply in the hierarchy of, of heaven, man was to have an even higher place than the angels as the image of God, uh, who God, um, 
saw it fit to become one of us, right, in, in Christ, um, that this made the, the demons jealous, and it made the devil jealous especially, and he revolted against his natural purpose, which was to guide us uh, to God. Um, instead, he tempted us to sin. And uh, so they inverse the role. So the role of of the angel was to guide man, and he did the opposite. And th and that's what the fall of Satan was. Um, yeah. So Sarah from Hamilton is really good on on sort of the biblical stuff. Something else I want oh, to actually, point out a... with um, sorry. I was going to uh, say we just interviewed Sarah from Hamilton. That's all. Yeah. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what I was going to say with like uh you know there with demons right there there have been people who are like like you know who would say like well sometimes they predict the future how do they know the future what's going to happen because you know say for example like a soothsayer or witch or whatever uh tells somebody like oh this thing is going to happen and and because you know demonic influence um but really, the demons don't actually know the future, but they are very good at predicting it. That's the key. They like they they don't know it. They're not omniscient. Right. They like, you know, for example, a demon can go from one side of the universe to the other side in a second, like mm -hmm. barely a blink and, and they're over there. So not constrained they can, by space. Yeah. So they can they're not constrained um, by space. Yeah. So they can, you know, say, for example, a soothsayer says like, oh, when you get home, your donkey's going to die. It hasn't died yet, but mm -hmm. it's somehow somehow she knows. But it's not because the demon somehow saw the future, but he can predict what will happen. So like right. certain conditions with like the donkey, for example, like they didn't get watered in time or it was left out in the sun too long. It died of heat. It is currently dying of heat stroke or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Because the owner forgot. So when they get home, yeah, it is dead. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a that's Something. a great point. Yeah, because yeah. the angels are sort of um, there. There is what Maximus of Confessor calls the logi, or the sort of the the inner reason reason of creation. Um, there's like patterns to the world, and when you do certain mm -hmm. things, stuff happens. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, we yeah, mentioned spiritual Seraphim. laws. Yeah, 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 exactly. Sarah from Hamilton yeah. talks about this, how like the dangers of the occult isn't just that you'll be falling into delusion, but that you'll be receiving sort of power and and the ability to manipulate creation in a way that because of your spiritual state you it's not wise for you to have that power and mm -hmm. um yeah so angels are all angels including demons seem to have sort of a superior knowledge of the inner wiring of creation because they were created with the full revelation of god and that's part of why they're they're um they're they're um guilty so much more than us at this point in time of the sin they've committed they know god um yet they reject him um and that's why they have this power to manipulate and predict stuff and predict events um and are in many ways more intelligent than us um just because of the way they were created so yeah that's that's a good point yeah also um one third of the angels fell for those of our viewers watching if you go back and read the old testament not just lucifer that's where all the demons come from from that moment where they all chose one third of them fell away mm -hmm. just putting that out there the other thing i was going to say is i think and then you can elaborate on the topic how you'd like i was going to ask what's the whole purpose of giving us this chance to choose then why didn't god just not give us free will in time why and why is it only that in this the time that we have here on earth 
that we can affect our state in the time to come. Why can't we do it after we die? Why is it only in this set time that we can change the course of our final destination as stewards of creation, like you said? Why do we only get this moment, this time to choose? I think that's a great last question. Yeah, no, I agree. And I would say the best answer to this is in David Bradshaw's article on Ancient Faith Radio um, or uh, Ancient Faith Blog, sorry. Um, I don't know if they call it radio on the website, but um, yeah, he, he has a, a blog post about repentance after death or no repentance after death. And it's not just, you know, throwing quotes out from the fathers, but sort of explaining the inner logic of what they mean. Um, like he even makes a good point that Gregory of Nyssa, even though many people call him a universalist, and um, I, I'm not saying he wasn't, but um, the way he explained it was not that there's repentance after death. So um, this whole idea is there's like a consistent uh, theme amongst the fathers that there is no repentance after death. And I think it just relates to the fact that this time, the, the life that we're given is the time in which Christ has, has um, sort of limited, him, limited himself from his full revelation, which occurs upon our death. And because of the space that God has given us, we have the time to move towards him according to our own potentials. And um, Father Demetrius talks about how God is merciful, he understands that, and Paul says this as well, he doesn't give you more than you can bear, which means he's not asking you of more than you really can bear. You have the freedom um, right now at every moment, um, if you know Christ, to turn towards him. Um, I, 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 I want to say, though, that there are people who just don't yet have the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Like, like there, I, there was points in my life when I genuinely could not become a Christian. And there are some Christians, like not Orthodox people, but like certain Reformed people, I think, who read the Bible very literally when Paul says um, that we all knew about God. Uh, like, like there was a point in my life where I really did not believe in God. Um, I do think there were obviously things I was wrong about, but I wasn't lying or being disingenuous. So that's not how you should read Paul, I think. And that's why you shouldn't be too hard on people, especially friends and family members, because they're not Orthodox like you. Um, uh, but you should pray for them and, and, and hope yeah, they'll receive definitely. the truth, but be patient. Um, um, yeah, so in this life and time, uh, this is a time when God is slowly calling us. He's inviting us to communion and we should and through our prayer, through our participation in the life of the church, we can direct our life more and more increasingly so uh, towards God. So every choice we make glorifies God. It brings us closer to God. Um, and I'm I'm far from reaching this uh, perfection. Um, most people are. Um, but um, you want to orient your life in time because of the distance God has given us so that when we reach the fullness of the revelation of God, we can bear it. We're not going to run away um, in fear. We're not going to try to isolate ourselves because there are aspects of ourselves that we can't handle that we haven't, uh, dealt with, um, alongside Christ. We haven't let Christ into that part of ourselves in this life. We want to let Christ into every aspect of our being. And, um, we do this through participation in the life of the church and loving, uh, our neighbors and loving God, um, and all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And loving, loving your neighbors is not conditional upon them being how you'd like them to be you mm -hmm. love your neighbors as they are if they're people that you just genuinely don't like that's not a reason not to love them we're called to this divine love that transcends how we feel 
personally mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. said person and and this doesn't mean oh, if they're christian or not or no 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 you have to love them no matter what that's what we're called yeah. to do um now what i wanted to ask trey was there any last notes you had on this topic anything that we've kind of missed or or not gone through i haven't asked um no not really um if uh i could sort of plug some one of my things um i'm i talk about this a lot on my Substack, and um i'm posting a lot of stuff for free on there right now but um i'm writing a new book right now on um on philosophy and theology and um one of the chapters is on time so i've been reading a lot of of the theology around time and i've like sort of i've done like analysis of of augustine and other people and especially i rely especially on uh father uh dimitri um so that's on my Substack. um uh if anyone's interested but some of the stuff on time is behind a, a paywall which is like five dollars a month um so if you're really interested in that um there's my Substack and all my stuff there also some stuff i've done on my channel as well but um Ultimately, if you're really, if you really want to get deep into it, you should read Father um, Father Demetrius Staniloy, The Experience of God, Volume One, his essay Time and Eternity. Um, Florensky talks about it in, it in Pillar and Ground of the Truth. Um, there's Olivier Clément's Transfiguring Time. Um, uh, what else? Uh, honestly, uh, Byung-Chul Han, who isn't Orthodox, I believe he's a Christian, um, not really that explicit, but uh, he's a great philosopher. He has a book called The Scent of Time, which is also really good. Um, but yeah, aside from that, those are the basics that I've uh, really uh, based my understanding on. Oh, also uh, already mentioned it, but uh, Lewis's Great Divorce. So those are the main resources I would point people towards. Um Oh, oh, last thing. Sorry. Uh, Bradshaw's A Christian Approach to the Philosophy of Time, I think it's called. A really good paper. Um, yeah. Yeah, so actually, I was just about to ask if there was any books you recommended. So I think that answered it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll link your uh, Substack below in the comments. So guys, check that out. Um, Mary, did you Thank have you. any last notes or closing notes? Um, no, not really. Yeah, well, I think we yeah, covered everything. That's that's the, yeah. This yeah. is a good conversation. That was, that was really good. Yeah, thanks I, for inviting me. I enjoyed me. it a yeah. lot, actually. Yeah, yeah, that was great. A pleasure always to have you on. Uh, that's what I was going to say. I'm going to say that's the Orthodox squad signing out, and I'm so glad that we had Trey join us again for this season. Hopefully more episodes to come, and hopefully with him involved. So uh, thank you for watching. We appreciate you guys so much, and see you next time. Make some more like you said, like it is.